Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Let's get underway. Welcome. We're now in the third lecture of this series, three weeks Jewish history lecture series uh, about murdering Jews for something they did not do. Um, as you see now, the title of Sick Chimerical Christian Fantasies and Their Lethal Results in Jewish History is unfortunately not an exaggerated title. Chimerical, it's a chimera, it's, it's a fantasy. Okay? If you, if you have a chimerical, I, I, uh, I'll say it again, the blood libel is what you call chimerical anti-Semitism. It's ascribing to someone or to a group something that never happened, ever. Okay? And uh, that's different than if you blame a group for what one of them did. That's another problem, correct? Just because somebody I know killed somebody is nothing with me necessarily. That's another type of anti-Semitism. I, I understand that. But here we're going above and beyond, as you know, because we're dealing with, with uh, a phenomenon which, which, which uh, no Jew ever killed anybody for blood from Oxfam. Give me a break. You know, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. But as you've seen over here, the fact that I say it's ridiculous does not mean that, uh, that we haven't been charged with it. And the fact that it's ridiculous doesn't mean that lots of people are not being killed in very tragic circumstances as a, as a result of this. So it's not something that we can smirk at, and it's not something we can laugh at. It's a part of Jewish history. It isn't fun, but that's why this is a three weeks. The, uh, tonight's uh, talk is called uh, German Madness in the Middle Ages, Part 2. And as I was describing last time, I took you up to basically the end of the 1200s. This last massacre, I know it gets uh, one after the other, but that is unfortunately a part of what the Middle Ages was. Uh, it was in 1298. And today we're going to be covering the period of the 1300s and 1400s, the what they call the 14th, 15th centuries. And as far as the Jews are concerned, most of the Jews in Europe live in Germany, or the Holy Roman Empire was called at that time, for better or worse. Um, actually, it was the second largest, the largest is Spain, but uh, Germany is the second largest, the Ashkenaz, as they call it. And the general history of the Holy Roman Empire in the in, in second half of the Middle Ages is one in which you have the slipping power of the Holy Roman Emperor. And I told you last time, and it's true for Jews everywhere, that you need a very strong government for a minority to have any chance to survive. You need that. They should put the fear of God in you that people should be afraid to break the law. Because if you leave it to the you know, demagogues and you leave it to the mobs, we know, at, as I speak right now, that the mobs are raging around the world, in Paris and in other places, and the police just aren't strong enough or, or, or make a choice not to be strong enough to do anything about it. The Jews, as we've seen, had always bought protection from the Holy Roman Emperor. That is what the Middle Ages is all about. Um, you get to the person at the top, and you make it in his interest. You have no choice. You make it in his interest or her interest to uh, have you there and to give you basic protection for family, property, you know, the kind of thing hopefully one would take for granted, which one could not take for granted in the Middle Ages. And 
the guarantee is worth less and less as the emperor gets weaker. So all through the 1300s and the 1400s, the Jews are always paying top dollar, but its value of that promise is less. We have uh, charters of promises and guarantees that have been preserved in, in museums. You can go to Europe there and see them today in the Latin and all the rest of it, in which the guy said, I promise the Jews this, that, and the other. But he can't deliver. And yet at the same time, if you don't have a promise, it's even worse. And so there you have the old gullus of our ancestors. Um, are we okay here with the sound? Hey, uh, can you hear me now? Okay. Um, uh, one example that we saw last time was when uh, this guy named Rindfleisch uh, in Bavaria just went on a rampage because he said God told him to kill all the Jews and they did. Well, uh, in the 1330s, the same thing happened exactly in Alsace, where some nut named uh, Arnold von Usingheim, can you see the picture there? There you go. Says, uh, he said the same thing. He said, God appeared to me and told me to kill all the Jews. And he gets together a whole bunch of, uh, of uh, followers, naturally, and they run crazy throughout Alsace, that whole province, which was a heavy Jewish province in those days. Um, I'll read you the exact uh, details. A series of persecutions, a band of marauders who in 1338 and 1339, remember those years, 38 and 39, massacred a large number of Jews in Alsace. A nobleman of Franconia, pretending that an angel had commissioned him to do so, gathered a, ga a band of desperados and pillaged and murdered all the Jews, and they called themselves the Judenschlager, which is the, the Jew beaters. You see? Uh, sometime later, an innkeeper in Upper Alsace named Zimberlin, followed the example of in Franconia, and he tied pieces of leather around his arms, and he told his followers to do the same, and they came known as the arm leather, the leather around the arms, and they went around killing all the Jews. This is what that guy, that son of a gun, was trying to do in France, that uh, you know, African comedian with the, with the new uh, Nazi salute or something like that. The arm leather, if you wore that, that was a sign you remember the KKK, so to speak, in the 14th century. And you can just imagine what a Jew does when you see somebody walking on the street, and I mean, tomorrow, next day, I'm going to get you. And what can you do about it? You can't do anything about it. The emperor promised protection. The city promised protection. You know, the governor and the region promised protection. But it's 50-50. Maybe they'll be there when it's necessary. Maybe they won't be when it's necessary. The lords of Alsace, under the leadership of the Bishop of Strasbourg, formed an alliance which pledged themselves to pursue these guys because they got out of hand. We all know lawlessness rarely confines itself to a small group. First, you burn down these houses and kill these people. Then you go after someone else and someone else. And who knows if they'll only stop burning down the Jewish stores. Maybe they'll also burn down the store of a Christian guy to whom they owe money. It's, it's a, a narcotic, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous to allow lawlessness. And so the various nobles get together and 15 of his most prominent followers um, join the bishop. But it's very difficult to attack these guys. And in the following year, a knight named Rudolf of Andlau made an agreement with the leader, granting him an amnesty to him and his followers, provided that for the next ten years they would refrain from molesting the Jews. See, here we are with Israel and Hamas. I say, what are the, you know what I'm talking about, the Muslims, the real from Muslims, they say like this, we'll never make a peace with Israel. We'll give you a ten-year, uh, uh, what do they call it, uh, uh, I forgot the different terms, get a hood or something, in other words, as, as a temporary measure. But don't think there's any kind of long-term measure. Now, what makes all this uh, tragic, I mean, the whole thing is tragic, but it makes all this, 
the events uh, became irrelevant or surpassed by a much greater problem that hit 10 years later. Because by the time the 10 years were up, bubonic plague, the great black plague that hit the world and Europe and killed half the people on the planet. Okay? Now, uh, I don't think today they know for sure, and I'm certainly not a, a scientist or a doctor or any kind of uh, expertise with diseases and this sort of thing, but I know enough to know that obviously a terrible pandemic hit the world, and obviously the medicine didn't exist, it was all wrong, and they didn't know anything of what is necessary to do in such a situation, assuming that something could. I think they're called the bubonic plague because they got these buboes, they got these things, you know, terrible growths all over you. So everybody looked horrible and uh, disfigured. Let's see here. Wait. There you go. You see the terrible pictures over there? That's from that time, by the way. That's from a, a contemporary document. And uh, when you realize that they knew nothing of basic hygiene, they simply didn't know, then you understand that you have a perfect storm. It's a terrible plague brought from Asia through rats and things like that. Added to the fact that everybody lives in, in pigsty conditions. Um, Europe at this time didn't believe in taking baths. I'm sure you know that. And I mean that seriously. Uh, they didn't uh, consider, I mean, in general, you and I live in an unbelievably antiseptic environment compared to what it was once upon a time. Because we don't have horses we don't have animals walking around and doing whatever they do, and the streets are different than what they were once upon a time, and we freak out if the garbage bag gets torn or something like that. But you imagine when you had pigs and whatever running all over the place, eating you know, the garbage, and in other words, it's, it's, it's a, uh, what's the right word? You know, it's, it's a paradise for, for bacteria, you know, and things like this. And, yeah, that's a, there's, a, there's various theories about it. They blame the cats. But even if they want to kill the cats, right? Uh, which I'm always in favor of. He says, which, uh, if, even if they wouldn't have done that, the, uh, the, the, they wouldn't solve the problem because you're dealing with a major medical issue, which, to be perfectly honest, even if it hit today, I'm not a doctor, even if today would be a major challenge. You understand me? A public health challenge of the first magnitude. And Kalba Homer in the 14th century. Now, here's the point. The, uh, this was an unprecedented catastrophe. Now, you and I are sitting here in the small gear, you know, 2014, when we're all scientifically educated and all the rest of it. But take yourself back to the 1300s, the middle of the 1300s, 1348, 49, 50, and the early 50s. And look around and see that everybody's dying. And they were. And no one knows how to stop it. And they're dying in a horrible way, too. It's the hand of God. It's in those why is this happening to us? And they probably thought, like the people did in the time of Noah, the world is coming to an end. And we have many writings and things of this nature in which the world is coming to an end. They didn't know how to properly evaluate it. Why has it come? Since it's a question that can't be answered, a lot of different answers were proposed and popped up by different thinkers in Europe. Uh, some of them said, it's a punishment by God for our sins. That works. The Bible always says that whenever you have a terrible plague, it's a punishment by God's sins. Europe was not short on the sins. To be perfectly honest, it's spread all over the world. So Asia, uh, there's always plenty of sins to go around. No question about that. Another explanation was, and this is very contemporary, a very contemporary one. The other explanation was, it's a, it's a biological warfare attack. If Chas Vesholem, such a thing, God forbid, if such a thing hit today, a country, you know, it's like a, like a movie from the 1960s, if something like this hit the country, it's, it's attacked by evil genius, 
or by somebody. We would have said the Russians. Nowadays, they'll say Al-Qaeda or something like this. Whoever your boogeyman is, that's the one who, that, that, that's the one who did it. And to be perfectly honest, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, the only thing holding one country from doing it to the other is that the other country can do it back to you. Believe you me, Egypt, Syria, and all these other countries, oops, Egypt, Syria, and Israel would like to do it to Israel, but they know Israel could do it back to them. You get it? So it's a balance of terror, which always terrifies me because you have state actors and you have non-state actors. These terrorist groups, they wouldn't mind if both countries go down as long as Israel goes down. And therefore, we're that close to biological attacks. Now, if you're, uh, if that's true, who is launching the biological warfare against mankind? Of course, the answer is the Jews. Right? Uh, because, or the, or the witches. Meaning, what group is invested in the mind of Christians in Western Europe in 1350 in wanting to kill everybody around? Well, all the people who are dying are, are Christians. So obviously, some group that hates the Christians. This is the mentality that swept through a lot of people's minds. And it's either the, the witch or it's the Jews. You see? And uh, both of them got uh, killed. But the Jews is, is very uh, a catching type of, of uh, what's the right word? You know, uh, 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 narrative. Uh, the Jews get together and they do something very fiendish. And God knows they hate us because we've been persecuting them. And therefore, what do they end up doing? If you can see it here, they're going to poison the wells. Okay? And the Jews are accused and killed whole communities in Switzerland, in France, in Germany, all these times, because they launched a biological warfare attack, or as they called the Middle Ages, they poisoned the wells. And uh, if we fix it, they have pictures of, uh, from that time, where they show you that, you know, here's the Jews going and pouring junk in, in, into the water supply. Uh, they couldn't imagine that it was due to their lack of hygiene or things of this nature. Because after all, who would be so nefarious to do such a terrible deed that would kill men, women, and children, except the Jews. Now, some historians have always conjectured that the Jews were cleaner. And if you were young, you heard this maybe in high school or something like that. They were angry uh, because the Jews were more hygienic. That's baloney. The Jews were no more hygienic than anyone I shouldn't say no more hygienic than anyone else, but uh, that's not true. Uh, the average person over there took a bath maybe twice a year. The Jew took a bath once a week. But let me tell you something. Taking a bath once a week doesn't make it particularly hygienic. Second of all, they didn't know about soap and all that kind of stuff in the 14th century. And to go to a dirty mikvah and such places is not uh, calculated to advance the cause of hygiene. So it, tr Judaism is marginally more into washing and in a ritualistic way than other cultures. There's no question about that. But not enough in my mind, not enough in the mind of, of thoughtful and serious historians in the last 50 years to justify the idea that, you know, oh, because of that, a pandemic didn't hit them. You could be as clean as you want if the type of, um, we have doctors here who can tell you, the type of uh, disease spreading I'm talking about hits, it doesn't matter how many times you take a shower. You understand? You talk about, uh, you know, the, the spread of, of, of terrible diseases. So this is a popular uh, kind of, uh, of, of uh, you know, fixture. Yes. So a string of massacres happens by Christians even as the Christians are dying. That's what gives it such a macabre kind of quality to what happens during this period. In Basel, in uh, Germany, in, uh, in, in Holland, and places like that, 
they're killing the people. The people who kill the Jews a week or two later or three weeks later are dead because it hits them. You understand? So it's it's weird, but it's the idea like Samson take them take them down at least to the Philistines. And so usually the Jews are just slaughtered in the city of Mainz. The Jews made a JDL, like you read about in Paris the other day. They formed a couple guys to go fight the mob that was attacking the synagogue, and they killed a couple hundred of the mob. But in the end, they were overwhelmed and they were slaughtered because. At the end of the day, the Jews are a small group, a small minority, and they can't fight back. I mean, they can fight back, but I mean, it's, it's a hopeless cause because we have a whole city and a whole town and huge groups against you, and you're so small a number. You know, and after all the heroism is over, which we do admire, uh, it, it has no has no chance. Uh, now, at this time, you have a funny situation in which you have a bad Holy Roman Emperor and a good Pope. The emperor at that time was Louis the Louis the Fourth, Ludwig the Fourth, and the pope was Clement the Sixth. Louis the Fourth was exactly what I kept saying: "Give me more money, and I'll sign you more protection paper." But every time something happens in a town, he basically says like this: "He says you shouldn't have done it, but I have no intention of publishing of punishing the perpetrators." Well, what does that message send you? Okay, that's a poison message itself. And though uh, the rumor, uh, the, the 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 news spreads immediately all over Germany. But the Jews simply don't know what to do. They can only go back and try to give more money again. That's the only way they know of dealing with the situation. Maybe this time, he'll really keep his word, but he never does. On the other hand, the Pope in Rome, Clement VI, is, um, is, is, is well, let's put it this way, he tries to use reason, but uh, to no avail. Uh, Clement is a very interesting person uh, in the history of the papacy, and he writes exactly what you were mentioning before. It's a very interesting papal bull, that he writes in which he says like this, uh, false rumors are being spread out to Jews. This is stupid. They're dying too. This is what he writes. He says, the rumors, it's, it's not true. They're dying too. Second of all, he says, this is crazy. There are huge epidemics raging in China and in India, Mongolia, where there are no Jews. So you see, a simple basic reasoning process shows you the falsity of the charges, but of course, they don't, they don't care. You understand? It's not, it's not about... Oops, let me go this way. There is the Jews poisoning the wells, as you can see. All right? It's a French picture, <laughs> naturally. And here you have Louis IV, who was the uh, lousy Holy Roman Emperor. And here you have Clement VI, who, who tried his best. I mean, you've got to be honest about this. You've got to be fair. Tried his best to save the Jews. The only thing is, when you're dealing in a situation where the world is coming to an end, and people are dying, right and left, and it looks like the end of time, they don't want to hear reasoned arguments that make sense, even if it's coming from the Pope. And so it was a terrible time to be Jewish. Um, and as you see, the 14th century, therefore, left terrible devastation in its wake. And um, by the time it was over, and it only was over when it just finished killing whoever it was going to kill. By the time it was over, so the uh, Christian communities had been devastated, 50% killed. And the Jewish communities have been devastated, including many of the rabbis and the scholars and all the rest of it. It's well known that in Germany, after the Black Plague, uh, Judaism was tottering, and uh, the normal forms of Ashkenazic religious authority were shattered because so many of the actual learned people had died, and a whole bunch of phonies stepped up in their place, like it was America 100 years ago. Guy gets off the boat, I'm a reverend. You know, I'm a rabbi. You know, the chief rabbi. There was, was notorious, right? I mean, we know this. 
Back in the early 1900s or whatever, what's that famous story? A guy he gets off the boat and he tells the guy to paint a sign, Chief Rabbi of the whole United States. He said, who made you the chief rabbi? He said, the sign painter. He said, why'd you say? He said, why? But that's a little, that's a little presumptuous. Why do you declare yourself chief rabbi of the whole United States? He said, that way, in order to fire me, all the shows will have to get together. That'll never happen. You understand? So that, once again, it's a Jewish humor way of trying to deal with a tragic situation. It was a religious chaos. And a lot of phonies uh, flourished in this country, for example, at that time. Same thing happened in Germany, second half of the 1300s, first half of the 1400s. That's when they introduced, my friends, what we call smicha. That's what comes from now. You see? That you want to call yourself rabbi, show me a piece of paper. And where'd you get your smicha from? Meaning that the attempts to institutionalize the rabbinate to whatever small degree uh, do not exist prior to the 14th century in Germany and never actually hit the Sephardic world, which is why the Barbanel, very famously from Spain, who was very learned, uh, was a statesman, always a great Talmud Chacham, when he runs away from Spain and ends up in Italy, he says, I'm running into these Ashkenazic Jews who claim that they have papers saying they're rabbis. Like, what is that business? You know what I mean? Sounds like, sounds like a Wizard of Oz. You know, they, 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 they're playing. But it wasn't funny because how do you tell a, a real one from a fake one? I'll give you a, just a good example, which is really a problem. A guy shows up in town and says, I'm a sheikhit. The others don't know. I mean, you know, he, he, you know, he knows that. I cut the neck and all this. Oh, I know all the dinim and I'm doing all this right. I mean, how, how's the average individual supposed to know? I'll ask you a question today, right now, the year 2014. You buy tefillin or a mezuzah from somebody. You don't know. You know, you go to the store and say, give me a good one, not one. You have no idea what he's telling you the truth. You see? So the public, to some degree or another, requires a regulation. That's why in the modern state, this, in the last 100 years, 150 years, the state undertakes to regulate certain things. Again, we have doctors over here. Imagine somebody in the old, imagine the old days when you had pharmacists. What makes you a pharmacist? I put up a sign. Right? I go there and get medicine. This happens, right? You get medicine, they give you who knows what? You know, shoe polish. And uh, by the way, that did happen, which caused even the Republican administration in the United States. So we had like Teddy Roosevelt with a food and drug acts and things like this. Because come on, you know, it's not fair to the public. So the fact that this hit to a limited degree in medieval Judaism is a result of the devastating effects of the Black Plague. So here the Jews went through a time in which they got to worry about the blood libel, and then they got to worry about the host desecration, and then, like I say, out of nowhere comes the bubonic plague, which, which it was a tough time to be around. Um, a very tough time. The most dramatic story, though, and the one I'm going to talk about tonight, uh, unfortunately, uh, takes place in Vienna in 1420-1421. Um, I was supposed to be in Vienna, actually, this time of the year. That trip fell through, but... Uh, Vienna is associated with many positive things in Jewish history, but Vienna is also associated with many negative things in Jewish history. Um, the Jews in Vienna is an old community going back to the 10, 1100s, and what shall I say? They built up a uh, very important Jewish center, Yiddishkeit wise. Here, let's, uh, I know, I'm trying to get it. By the way, that's what. Go back to that. Look what the Pope said over there. You can read it, right? Can it be true? Such a heinous crime caused occasion of plague because look at the other parts of the world where they aren't there. 
So he tried to use reason with them, it didn't work. Now let's move to the next one. There is a remodel of what they call the Orzaro Synagogue, which means the Ashkenazi Jews built their own little ghetto in Vienna back in the 1200s. They had a very famous rabbi, the Orzaro. He was like, you know, the, the leading rabbi of the generation, one of them. And he said, Moshe, and very, very, very important Ashkenazic authority. And uh, they had a place called the Judenplatz, which is still there today in Vienna. And um, the Jews are doing well because they're merchants. The rest of the public isn't, mostly. And they pay off the rulers, which are the Habsburgs, who, till the day they went out of business, were all desperate for money. They never were good at money. There is tremendous anti-Semitism on the part of the population, and this is true even today. I know many of you will be familiar with the famous picture. Hitler comes in March of 1938 into Vienna. They cheer him like crazy and mob him. Right? They couldn't get enough of Hitler. So... The Jews are too rich. They cause the drought. You know, they come up with any, you know, they're, they're responsible, like I say, for the plagues. The dukes protect them because of the money. So you have the usual bad situation. The Jews are dependent on a tiny stratum, like the duke. But if, as far as the public is concerned, they want to tear you to bits. There was a big fire in Vienna in 1406, which led to the mobs rushing and sacking the Jewish quarter. It's somewhat like if you're old enough to remember, they had the riots in Baltimore and things like this. And what happened, they immediately hit all the stores and, and cleaned them out. So they took all the furniture and the money and everything. The Duke punishes the rioters. How? He says, well, the Jews are not responsible for any moshkin destroyed in the fire. Meaning Jews are bankers and money lenders, things like this. The Christians have many valuables that are put in for security in the house of the Jew. They're now destroyed or stolen by the mob. The mob is actually thinking like this. I owe the guy money, now I go take the IOU, or I take the, 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 the watch I gave him, and now I don't own him. And the, and, and the duke says, uh-uh. Uh, you still got to you know, make good that debt, because I get 10%. <laughs> it's not the duke is a righteous individual, but he wants his cut. Now, at the same time, in the period I'm talking about, in the early 1400s, if you know what's going on, there was a tremendous uh, set of wars going on in... Um, in Europe at that time, in Austria and in Bohemia. Do you have it over there? Is it running? No, the one before. Well, anyway, they had what they call the Hussite Wars. The, there was an attempt to start Protestantism in the 1400s and they killed them. Well, that's not exactly true, but it didn't spread as they wished. In the 1500s, the Protestants came along with Martin Luther. But a hundred years before Martin Luther was Jan Hus, famous Bohemian priest, who in his particular way was out against the Pope, and he thought that they're doing a lot of bad things in the Catholic Church. He wasn't exactly like Martin Luther at all, but nevertheless, in many respects, he was, including, by the way, a disbelief in the, uh, in the body and blood and the transubstantiation of the Mass. The result was that Bohemia, the Czechs, um, all switched, or a lot of them switched to the Hussites, to this new group. The Catholic Church went bonkers, and they, the Holy Roman Emperor and the Habsburgs and all the princes of Europe and all the knights teamed up to wipe them out. They had a whole bunch of crusades. And it was, it was a whole big group that ganged up on the Czechs, and the Czechs beat them every time. It's remarkable. They had like 20, 30 years of war, and the Czechs, under a very great commander, Zizka, uh defeated them. I had a, a movie over here to show you a piece of it, where they did very interesting things. They used to, they used to line up wagons in a certain way, and the knights would charge, and they would all get wiped out. 
and it was a, 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 a very harsh time, and the Catholics were going crazy because they're always getting beaten. You know what I'm saying? Here they raise a huge army, and they get blessed by the Pope, and they are fighting heresy, and they're doing all kind of all the right things, and they get beaten. And then they do it again, and they get beaten. And how can this small group keep beating them? But they could. The uh, commander, uh, Zizka, was like Oliver Cromwell. He was a big respecter of the Old Testament. Now, he was a Christian, mind you. He was a big, uh, 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 you know, respecter of the Old Testament. And uh, let's put it this way. He hated Catholics more than he hated Jews. He didn't like Jews. But he hated Catholics more than he hated Jews. This is something new. And as I say, inconveniently, he keeps winning the battles. Uh, my mother is from a small town, Bardiov in Slovakia. She, they, they used to have a, a, a statue uh, of uh, Zizka in, in the square in which he says, you evil people, Bardiov, because... <laughs> Because he wouldn't give them, they wouldn't give him money during one of the wars. So they were so proud of being associated with him, even if he dissed them, they wanted to put up a statue to him. So uh, you don't know that this was tough times. And, and this guy was a tough son of a gun. When he died, he left in his will, take my body, strip off the skin, turn it into a drum, and beat the drums and lead the men into battle against the Catholics. Okay? So they, you know, these, these guys didn't fool around. Now why am I going through all this? Because the, uh, the Duke of Austria, Albert V, uh, you see over here, the Duke is very frustrated. Okay, can you do it to the next one? That's just go to the next one. Yeah, this is going to be the Mamzer we deal with tonight. He says the uh, the Duke of Austria, uh, Albert V, who later became the King of the Germans. He's very frustrated. He keeps fighting and keeps losing. Um, many say that the Hussites are in league with the Jews. After all. When you lose a battle, it's not my fault, it's someone else's fault. This is true in the Arab world even today. It's never their fault, it's always someone else. You know that. They never take responsibility. And the Austrians were exactly the same. And so whose fault could it be? The Jews. I heard the Jews are giving them all the money. Where'd you hear? That's what I heard. I heard the Jews are giving them all the weapons. That's what I heard. You understand? And again... You can't smirk, I know we smirk, we can't smirk and smile because this was taken seriously and Jews are in mortal danger, even though the Jews really had nothing to do with the Hussite wars and the Hussite rebellions. I can tell you just an interesting fact that you'll never hear anywhere else, and that is that eventually, over a course of time, over a course of time, uh, the Hussites were sort of like suppressed, not exactly, but somewhat, and as further time went on, a number of them converted to Judaism, like in the late 1500s and early 1600s. Uh, one of the Hussite families that converted Judaism, Franz Kafka, his ancestors. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, when you see Kafka, he's Jewish, but, you know, it's a, it's, that, that strangeness about him, his very Czech nature, is because if you go way back when, you come, come from the Hussites. Anyway, there are others that like that also. Now, here comes a big problem, which, as you know by now, if you've been listening to this series, is endemic to the Jewish situation. In order to fight the wars... Albert has to borrow astronomical sums from the Jews. That's a warning sign, baby. When I borrow astronomical sums from you, what does that mean? <laughs> yes, right. Correct? Uh, or have you heard of the American debt? Okay? No, no, seriously. Now, if you're Jewish, it's really a problem. Because it's just too tempting for them to get rid of you. You get it? Now, if the Jews would have been smart, um, of course, it's hindsight 2020. If the Jews would have been smart, and thinking of the bottom bond, they would have said like this, we cancel all the debts or something like that, right? But, it's, but they didn't. And, you know, they, nobody can see, foresee what's going to happen until afterwards everybody's a smart quarterback. But I'm telling you what happened at that time. 
And so it should have been a warning sign, but it wasn't. Uh, so here's Albert, who owes a fortune now to the Jews. Something's going to happen. And something does happen. Next thing you know, a report, quote-unquote, pops up somewhere in Austria that some Jews desecrated a host. You know, they stole the wafer, they beat it up, they made it bleed, the whole nine yards, right? Whatever particular variation of the story it was. And the beauty, the evil beauty of this, as I told you last time, is you don't need a corpus delecti, do you? You don't need a dead body to say that they murdered anybody or something like that, although I think worse comes to worse, he could have come up with that too. All you need is a rumor that the Jews insulted Jesus in the worst way, and when I say insulted Jesus, that's not the right word. They attacked him. And you say, well, how do you do this? He's in the wafer. He said, give me a break. No, it's real. You see? And it's a Hussite war, so the Catholics are Catholic because they're fighting a religious war against the heretics. And it's Austria, where even today, these feelings are seething like a cauldron. You know, I wouldn't advise, I mean, it's okay to go, as they say, for a Jewish history tour to Vienna or something like that, but I can't understand these Jewish groups that go for vacation to Austria. You know, want to spend time in Innsbruck and Salzburg and the Alps. Why do you want to do that? You know, they, 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 they hate your guts, and if they, if, if they had the opportunity, it would slit your throat. So, 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 so what do you want to do? Because you want to relive, uh, you know, uh, what's it called, uh, Julie Andrews and all that? I mean, come on. Anyway, now, a trial is held, of course. Uh, a Christian lady is accused of selling the host to a Jew. So that often happens. There's a bad Christian who, for filthy money, is willing to give over Jesus himself to a Jew. After all, he was sold in the New Testament story for 20 pieces of silver, right? And uh, the Jew himself is also arrested. The one, and um, after interrogation, they both confess. Of course, as we know, in Middle Ages, of course you confess. You know, first they put you in the torture chamber, then you confess. Thereupon, on March 24th, 1420, at a given prearranged signal, all the Jews in Austria are imprisoned all over the country. In many places, the Jews, especially the women, commit suicide because they know what lies in store for them. The survivors are brought to Vienna. Let me read you a, uh, a brief account. This is called the Xerus Ostreich. Uh, on March 24, 1420, all the Jews of Austria in prison. They knew well what fate was in store for them. For one thing, the judicial investigation was conducted by the city of Vienna, which are bitter enemies of the Jews, and so on and so forth. In order to avoid the horrors of the torture chamber and the terrors of the stake, some, like the women of Modling and Pechtersdorf, committed suicide. In other cases, they killed one another, because that way it's not suicide. You know, that's a halachic sensibility. The survivors were brought to Vienna. Here, some of them, Viennese as well as Jews from the rest of Austria, were imprisoned or held captive in their houses. You'll see in a little bit that they actually took, particularly the women and children, and put them in individual houses of Christians in order to uh, go to work on them to convert them. Another group was kept under guard in the synagogue, the Orzeruishal that I showed you before in the picture. Even the poorest among the Jews had the only shirt covering their bodies stripped away and were deprived of their last morsels of food. Then they were driven to the Danube and put on boats without oars. So what does this mean to people who don't know how to swim and all the rest of it? You've got to go down then until you get to the rapids and it turn you over and you drown. You see? But they would say, I guess, it's an act of God. We didn't do it. In the midst of this heartrending weeping of the children, the boats were pushed away from the shore at the mercy of the downward rushing stream. The next step was to interrogate those who had been held in Vienna in order to discover whether they had hidden their valuables. Do you see the foreshadowings of the Holocaust in all this? Yeah. 
Since the property of a baptized Jew fell to the Duke, great efforts were made by means of excruciating torture to persuade the head of the Jewish community to become baptized. He was thus to set an example for the rest of the community, but he preferred to be tortured to death. Children were whipped before the eyes of their parents until their blood flowed. Adults were hanged by chains over a fire. And they all chose death and not baptism. They could have saved their life. Because this is not Hitler. At the end of the day, it's the more civilized 15th century than the 20th century. By that I mean that any Jew over here, or most of them anyway, you could always save yourself by converting. And they wouldn't do it. Young men were put in the barrels and rolled about until they died. Meaning they kept rolling and maxing them up until they said, do you convert, do you convert, do you convert? And if you never stop, eventually you kill them. Of those who were imprisoned in the shoal, it was decided to take the children under 15 and baptize them. The prisoners thereupon made up their minds to do what they did at Masada and kill themselves. One woman was chosen by Lot to slaughter the men. A woman was chosen to slaughter the women. The Lot fell, I mean, one man did it to the men, one to women, I'm sorry. The Lot fell upon Yonah and the three sons of David. It doesn't matter. It was the Shabbos of Sukkot. What a Sukkot. Of 1420. The men placed themselves before the Arn Kodesh. The women stood in the women's section as is customary before a coffin. They asked forgiveness, whatever injury they caused to one another. Do you understand what I'm talking about? They're going to have a mass suicide. Before the mass suicide, they say, are you muckle me? Muckle, you know, bygones, bygones. It's, it's, it's an unbelievable scene. I don't think anyone would make a movie of it. It would be too tragic. Then they uttered Shema Yisrael, the Vidoy actually. First it said Vidoy. Then this guy Yonah killed the men and the woman you know, killed her, the women. In order to keep their enemies from desecrating their bodies, he poured the oil of the Ner Tamid on the reading desk, on the bim over there, and after setting a fire, committed suicide, which means the place burned down after everyone had committed mass suicide. This is what they take you to see if you go to Vienna today to the Judenplatz. It's the same site where in 1943-42 they took the Jews to send them off to Auschwitz. You see? This is uh, Jewish Vienna, so to speak. Now, uh, the anger of the Duke was aroused by such violent conduct. That's a lie. But, maybe yes, maybe no. And I'll tell you why. The Pope, the Jews, who were not there in Vienna, heard what's going on, and immediately wrote to the Pope. Now, this is the 14th, it's a different Pope. Martin V. Now, again, I don't expect you to be papal scholars or anything, I guess. But he, these, the names I'm giving you today, Clement and Martin, these are famous figures in the history of the Catholic Church. Martin V, uh, shall I say, he's the one who ended the schism of the Western Church. Not that that means anything to you, but uh, he's an important uh, person. He had already shown himself, it was a Pope set 1417 already. Um, let me just give an aside. The Jews in Spain went through a terrible persecution starting in 1391. We spoke about it in the past. And there was a lot of killing and things like that. And it went on and on and on until this guy became the Pope. And then he said, you know, enough is enough. That's when it stopped. So he's a very important figure in Jewish history. And he had already shown himself relatively nice to the Jews in 1419 in responding to Jewish delegates for what they called the Council of Forli. Uh, see where Forli is up there in Italy? They used to be, in those days, the Jews, for mutual protection, would have National Congress of Jewish Communities. What that means is they all got to get together and raise money to bribe somebody. That's what it means to advance Jewish I'm sorry, that's the way it was. And in this case, if you want to get justice from somebody, I repeat, if you want to get justice from somebody, you got to pay them off. You hear what I said? Not to get a favor, but to get even even deal. You understand? 
You have to pay him to do what he should do anyway. But but in the Middle Ages, it wasn't considered that I should have to do what I ought to do anyway unless I get rewarded for doing the good deed. Having said that, there's a good pope. And so they went to him, and there were all kind of decrees that had recently been passed against the Jews, and he did cancel them. I will uh, share with you something interesting. This same Congress of the Jews, who knew what a terrible time they're living through, listen to what I'm describing here today, issued several decrees pertaining to the internal affairs of the Italian communities, which were evidently intended to elevate the moral tone and to avoid everything that might attract the envy of the Christian population. Hmm. The age-old problem that the Jews walk around too swaggeringly and too uppity. Particularly, this notorious the Jewish women. Now, I mean, I'm serious about this. You saying It was always the case that whatever the guy dressed like, the women in the... So it's supposed to be like a ghetto or a Jewish neighborhood. They always dress better than anybody else. Fabrics more than someone else can get. It's stupid to do that. You create a tremendous hatred which builds up and then blows up into the kind of explosions that I'm describing. The people were forbidden to play cards or dice or permit such games in their houses. Men and women were forbidden to wear luxurious garments or ornaments or go through the streets in large numbers because a small Italian town is a chasana. All the Jews get together. It might be altogether 100 people, but you know, to the person not Jewish, there's a million Jews here. Right? I've told a thousand times, the story, at least a thousand times, the story that, um, that's the truth, that, that uh, CBS News, back in the 60s, when I was a kid, did uh, you know, a show on anti-Semitism. And there's Walter Cronkite in Louisville, Kentucky. And he's talking to a lady who's not Jewish. And they're taking a say, how many Jews is America? 50 million, she says. And Walter Cronkite says, what would you say if I were to tell you, ma'am, actually that's incorrect. It's not 50 million in America, it's actually 5 million. She said, 5 million? They must all live in Louisville. <laughs> yeah? Now it's funny, it's not funny. So different, it's like this. You see 50 Jews getting together to go to a wedding in Forley or in uh, Florence or something like this. Oh my God, it's a Jewish invasion. Correct? And to be perfectly honest, it's true today. If everybody, if, if a large number of Jews gather in any one place, oh, what's going on over here? They're taking over. You see? So it's, it's a problem. Um, so they prohibited this by a series of taconas to display at banquets and family festivals. Pompous escorts of brides were greatly restricted because Jews like to spend money on a chasana. And a small Italian town is too blatant in the face. And the chasana might end them in blood. Sexual immorality particularly was condemned. Decrees were to remain in force until 1426, and so on and so on and so forth. So it was interesting times the Jews were living in. The Pope issued a tough bull, a papal bull, which he threatened. He said like this, what's going on in Austria is totally against the Catholic religion, it's unconscionable, and it's a terrible crime. Now listen to this, you won't believe what I'm about to tell you. The Pope issued a bull in which he threatened any priest who converted a Jew by force or pressure, particularly a Jewish kid, with excommunication. This is tough language in the 15th century. It's tough language in the Catholic Church today, but not like it was, was then. It was much more serious. And it's interesting. The Pope was a Pope. And he said like this, they can't thrive, but they can survive. And the rules are, you can't force them to convert. That goes back to St. Augustine. You can't force them to convert. You see? I don't like the fact they didn't convert either. I'm waiting that they should, as he puts it, the cataract should fall off their eyes and they should see the truth. But you can't force them to convert. And to kill the parents by putting them on a ship and turning the boat upside down 
and taking a kid and putting him in barrels and torching him until they say, yeah, you can't do this. Okay? So that's pretty tough words. This is what made the Duke of Austria start to have a little bit of fidgeting. You understand? Because as a Catholic ruler, he didn't want to push it too far, and this Pope looked like he was taking things a little bit too seriously. Okay? Um, the result is there seems to have been a slight easing among the Jews, women and children, who have been held in confinement in Christian homes and in various places, some of whom were therefore able to escape. Let me read you how he puts it over here, where he says that uh, the Duke's anger was aroused at such conduct. He had hundreds of Jewish children gathered from all over Austria, and after arousing their hunger by refusing them food, he placed tray food in front of them. When they refused to eat, he had some of them sold into slavery and some of them forcibly baptized. On the 12th of March, 1421, they were, those who were still alive were brought to the judgment place in the high market and told they had been condemned to death. Ninety-two men, 122 women, were gathered in the Grunswald in Erdberg and burned alive, and they're very proud of it. Uh, let's see the next picture. That's the, No, go back. The other picture. There. Okay. This is a, a colorized picture from a Catholic, uh, you know, uh, etching in Austria in the 1400s. They think it's great. This was not put as a horror picture. It's actually prominent in a church somewhere in which you see they're doing the right thing. You don't know who you're dealing with. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You don't know who you're dealing with when you deal with these kind of countries. And uh, it is what it is. Previously, an attempt had been made to save the souls of those who already lost their property. There was, however, uh, meaning the, the Jews that they're talking about, uh, so a Jewish chronicle reports, spat at the Duke with disgust and went to their death as joyfully as they were going to Hasana, and they said Shema Yisrael and so on and so forth when they died. So in other words, the hatred that the Jews felt by the Austrians, they repaid tenfold, but they got burned to death. You know, in other so the whole Jews of Austria, of Vienna, uh, you know, just totally destroyed. And this is called the Xer of Vienna, and the Xer is Ostreich. Um, and let's say the Pope was against it. Now I want to tell you an interesting aside. This same Pope, who was good to the Jews, if you want to call it that, as far as Austria is concerned, as far as Forley is concerned, this same guy um, was tough to the Jews, and he issued a notorious Gezerah called the Gezerah Hayam, which obtained all throughout the 1400s, throughout the 15th centuries. You know what this is? You recognize it? This is Jerusalem. You know diaspora yeshiva? Now you know what I'm talking about, right? So they call it Har I don't know if it's a real Har This is called Har as, as the yeshiva's up there, there, maybe you read in the paper like I did uh, a couple weeks ago when they killed that Arab child, the local Arabs rioted, and these guys threw chon at them. Did you, did you read that? Okay. Uh, must be some tough chon. But anyway, the uh, fact is that uh, it's a hill uh, sort of facing the wall. And Israel already had it in 48. That's the one piece of the old city Israel had. Uh, if anybody's old enough to remember, before 67, you know, that's as far as you could go and look at the walls of the Jordanian side once upon a time. Now, there's a structure up there. Is it a church? Is it a synagogue? Is it a this? Or is it a that? And it's never been 100% clear. The Jews, somewhere in the Middle Ages, came up with the idea that this is a Mokham Kadosh. I'm not exactly sure how. I don't think anybody is. And the Jews even came up with the idea that David Amelch is buried there. Even that's baloney. So they go there today, the guy will tell you this is King David's tomb. Right? And there's a, a dead body buried there somewhere, and so that's King David. Right? Now, uh, the Catholics said, as a Christian site, has to do with something from the New Testament. 
And so it's a battle between whose site is it? Uh, does this sound familiar in the Middle East? I know we know of nothing like this nowadays where different religions argue over religious sites. Um, but anyway, that was going to that time. In the 1400s, Palestine was ruled by the Egyptians, by the Mamelukes. These were the rulers of Egypt. And the Jews and the Christians, are they were non-Muslims, and they're roughly held in equal contempt. And the Jews in Yerushalayim were Yerushalmis, like today. They have attitude, you understand? They, uh, you know, they, you don't mess with them. And you might tell him like this. He said, how can a Jew act up in it? It can happen. And so here you have the 1400s, 1420s, and it's physical fights over, who, is it a shul or a church? So you can just imagine the scene. And they both dare to do it because the Muslims are in charge, so, you know, they don't care. Eventually, the Jews go to the Turkish ruler, to, it wasn't the Turkish, the Mamluk ruler in Egypt, and they say, kick the uh, Christians out. It's a Jewish site. What does the Mamluk ruler say? He says, if this is King David, he's a hero in the Quran. Jews and Christians both out. It's a Muslim site. <laughs> you see? Now, later on, under different circumstances, the Muslims evacuated, weren't interested in, and then the Jews and the Christians came back in, uh, primarily the Christians. When this happened, what I just described to you, the news spread to Europe, and the Christians were so angry at the perfidy of the Jews, and it cost them one of their holy sites, that the Pope said, that no Christian ship, no European ship, should transport a Jew to Palestine, to the land of Israel. And if a Jew is found on a ship, throw him overboard. And they did. And so for 50, 60 years, something like that, you couldn't go to Israel in a normal route. And therefore nobody went to Israel. You understand what I'm saying? Theoretically, you could walk through what we call Turkey. You know, that's not, that's not a practical. And theoretically, I guess you could go to Egypt and then transfer there. A few people did that. But it's very, very hard. The regular route from Venice to, uh, to Jaffa or uh, Akko, are 12 days. Um, those who are with me in Venice, you know, they have a whole Venetian Navy tradition which had those triremes and so forth. They just hug down the coast, down the uh, Adriatic, and it's not, it's not as far as you would imagine. But for a long, long time, it, it couldn't be done. The Bartonura, who a uh, famous Italian rabbi moves to Jerusalem in 1488, writes, he said, I heard recently they got rid of that gezerah. So the popes are good, the popes are bad, but in Austria it doesn't help. Uh, I might add that the uh, state of Israel, when they took over this territory in 1948, uh, and since then have been tangled with the Catholic Church, which did not recognize Israel in 1948, and didn't recognize Israel, as you know, until Pope John II, uh, John Paul II. And it was a lot of, uh, I won't say behind the scenes, because it wasn't behind the scenes, a lot of diplomatic tug of war, and a lot of anti-Semitism and fights going on between the state of Israel and the foreign ministry on the one hand, and the Roman Catholic Church on the other hand. The Catholic Church has been trying to kick the Jews out of Hartzion and say it's exclusively Christian, Christian territory uh, ever, ever, ever since then. And the result is that we've had a lot of bad blood, um, as you, as you might imagine, and uh, I'm so, I'll tell you something interesting. Uh, take a look at the next picture. Uh, ben Gurion was a secular Jew, mm-hmm. and he was very uncomfortable dealing with the Catholic Church because he didn't know how to advance Jewish claims versus Christian claims. These are foreign to him. He can discuss matters with the State Department. He can discuss matters with the United Nations political questions. When you get to religious questions like who was there first and who's belonged to and what's the valence of this in our tradition, your tradition. And he pointed out a Herzog's son, Yaakov Herzog, 
who was a, a from guy, but a, a very highly uh, accomplished diplomat, who was a great Talmud Chacham on the one hand, and a very great diplomat on the other hand. Uh, and he was able, he knew Catholicism better than the Catholics, and he knew the Talmud pretty much by heart. He was quite a Talmud Chacham, and he was able to give it to him. And it was because of his negotiations, and he, he told, let's put it this way, he told him where to get off, that the state of Israel was able to hold on to us, but it's not over yet. I guarantee you, I'm sorry to say this, I guarantee you, if they'll ever have a final status agreement, and Israel get this part, and Palestine get that part, and all this kind of things that they're talking about, even though it's a joke when you think about the war going on in Gaza today, the Catholic Church will step in at the right moment, and will say, but this part belongs to us. Because the United Nations, in 1949, declared itself in favor of the internationalization of Jerusalem, and the international protection of the holy sites. And so, if you Jews want to, you know, do the Kotel, that's your business. If you Muslims want to do the Mosque, that's your business. But if you want Mount Zion, it's our business. So, I hope I'm wrong, and remember where you heard it. Now, um, I want to conclude this, and conclude tonight, with talking about uh, this very terrible and very famous episode in Jewish history, the halachic uh, aftermath, which is uh, very, very interesting. So I'm going to be a little bit technical, but not more than I need to be. Uh, and this was the problem of the wives. Because, and I wrote this up in a different place, but just to share with you what, uh, what, what I mentioned elsewhere. So bear with me. Um, this is 1421, and uh, here's what I wrote elsewhere. Very remarkable example of questions about what you're allowed, whether you're allowed to say you're Jew- not Jewish or not. It's found in the response of the Maril, famous German rabbi of this time, concerning a great halachic controversy that raged during the aftermath of the great persecution of the Jews of Vienna, known as the Wiener Gezerah, or the Gezerah's Ostrich. Gezerah means persecution. The evil archduke, as we've seen before, Albert, seized the peaceful Jews of Vienna, stripped them of their property, and sought through a reign of terror to compel them to convert. Now, what I'm going to share with you now, we know from the rabbinic uh, source of that time. Many Jews committed mass suicide, others were burned at the stake. Many Jews, particularly the women and children, were kidnapped and forced to live individually in Christian homes whose families were assigned the task of persuading these Jews to convert. As we've seen, this was so cruel even the Pope whoops, this was so cruel even the Pope protested. These Jewish women, married and unmarried, remained confined in these Christian homes for extended periods of time. Some women succumbed to the terrible persecutions and converted to Christianity. Oh, you can't blame them. And so did their spouses. Some of these women fled at the first opportunity and re-embraced Judaism. Do you understand what I'm saying? Some women, you know, said, I'll be a Christian all the rest of it because they were under terrible pressure and tortured. But later, when things died down a little bit, they took the opportunity to get the heck out of there and run somewhere else. Some brave women endured the ordeal without converting and also fled at the first opportunity. Meaning that there were X number of women and children in the houses they were all subjected to tremendous pressures. They're the lucky ones who weren't burned. But they were subjected, as they say, to tremendous pressure to eat trade, to, to, to follow Christianity, all the rest of it. Some did not give in, and some other were not killed. Some did give in. And of all these, some escaped at the first opportunity, and some didn't. You know, life is life. And as I always say, you can make a movies out of all this. And some people, some women stayed for a couple months, and then they, their conscience bothered them, and then they ran away. And so it was a whole big mess from the legal point of view. Um, as if their fate had not been tragic enough, these married women now seem to face halachic impediments 
to reuniting with their husbands who had survived, which is terrible. After all, the halacha states that a woman who was a shavuya, held captive by Gentiles, may possibly be prohibited to her Jewish husband. Okay? Uh, it's very complex laws, but it is what it is. The basic legal question is whether the captors had relations with her during the period of her captivity and whether she ever engaged in these relations willingly or only under duress. If her captors had relations with her, even against her will, if the husbands are calling, they cannot stay married. So here you have a, a, a problem in Jewish life that we face at the end of the Holocaust. Right? Look, uh, I'm a coin. Uh, my father coin. Of course, his family was killed out in the war, but consider the following horrific scenario, which didn't happen. Suppose my, I'm just making this up. He says, suppose my father, his wife had survived. And suppose in the Holocaust, I don't know, she was raped or something like this, uh, which is not her fault. But since he's a coin, he wouldn't be able to be married. They have to get divorced after the war. That's nuts. You know, it's, it's bad enough you went through Hitler. Therefore, you've got to go through this. Allah, very tough on Kohanim. And similarly, if the husband's not a Kohen, if the wife uh, was seduced or something like that, meaning it wasn't done under uh, you know, physical rape, uh, they, get, they, should, they have to get divorced when, when it's all over. Why? I mean, you know, she's a victim. Allah, very tough on this. You see? And here's a case where it really happened. If she participated willingly at any time, she can't remember with the husband if he's not a coin. In the absence of witnesses, and that's usually what you had over here, here's a lady ran away. She was in this and this house. Who knows what happened? Same thing with this one. Same thing with that one. And from the point of view of the Jewish courts, they just, you know, have a situation on their hands and no witnesses. The Jewish courts are guided by a series of Talmudic rules, judging whether or not she was involved in any of the scenarios I just described, which is what American law and every other law system in the world does also. You have rules of evidence, and then you have rules of how to operate when there's not exactly evidence. It's circumstantial on things like this. By definition, the escaped Jewish women of Vienna had been captives of the Gentiles. The great rabbis of Germany wrestled with these halachic questions in the 1420s as they sought to decide which women were permitted to reunite with their spouses and which were not. Now that is a question nobody, no rabbi in the world will ever want to have to face. But it was there, and they weren't, they were too frum to simply say, well, let's do, you know, this is the fourth, the people were very religious at that time. But on the other hand, it's counterintuitive almost to punish someone for this. So what do you do? You'll be shocked to hear that it was more than one opinion. <laughs> yeah. uh, two of the greatest rabbinical authorities were Rabbi Abram Katz and the Maril. Maril is a very famous, you don't know him, but you follow most of, a lot of what you do in daily life. You follow from the Shulchan Aruch, which if you just, without going into details, is based on the Maril. If you're Ashkenazic, from what this person did. Anyway, and their correspondence is included in Chewis Maril. The Rav Avram Katz, there's no relation to me, after weighing various halachic arguments to permit the women to reunite with the husbands, he concluded, you know, going like this and going like that, he said, concluded, that he was willing to be lenient regarding some of the women, though never with those whose husbands were Kohanim. The women who had steadfastly refused to convert in spite of the terrible pressure on which they were subject could be relied upon that they never willingly engaged in relations with the captors. Their spiritual determination not to sin had been demonstrated, although it didn't prove that they weren't raped. Now here you have the language of a judge. Like, what do you do? There's circumstantial evidence. Accordingly, they could reunite with their husbands if the husband was not a coin. Rabbi Abram Katz was reluctantly willing to be lenient with those women who had converted, but at least escaped at the first opportunity, thereby demonstrating their staunch religious character, although not as staunch as the first group, because the first group went through the tortures and didn't convert. So look, it's, it's, this is the Jewish reception of tragedy. 
they try to react to it in halachic fashion, even though it seems very strange to us today. Um, he was not willing to be lenient with those who had not escaped at the first opportunity. Jesus is suspected of succumbing, being succumbing to pressure and engaging willingly in relations with their captors at one point or another in the course of their ordeal. In other words, in his opinion, all the women were presumed to have relations with the captors, but only those who had not escaped at the first opportunity were not given the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Um, and if his husband's a Cohen, forget about it. The Maril, the other big rabbi, was more lenient. How so? He said even those who did not escape at the first opportunity could be assumed not to have willingly slept with the captors. He did concede that if it's a Cohen, then it's tough luck. Okay? It's been assumed that the captors did have relations with the captives. So you see over here, they were dealing with very, very uh, tough laws and very tough situation. What are you supposed to do? Now, if you just went by the writings that have survived from the 15th century, the Maril and so forth, you'd say, oh, it's a, it's a sad ending. Certainly for someone who was a, a, the, the, the wife of a Cohen, which makes no sense because you know, they're victims of, of a persecution. It's not something they did. The Ramah, Israelis who lived in the 1500s, the great codifier Ashkenazic practice, shares with us something that you wouldn't know from uh, elsewhere, and it's a very remarkable uh, kula. Despite the impeccable halachic reasoning, other rabbis of the generation did permit the wives of the Kohanim to go, to go back with the husband. The Ramon, the Tarki Moshe, opined that this was a horah shah, an emergency exceptional ruling. And so basically, in Judaism, there is such a thing called afkin or abon which means you retroactively annul the marriage. But that's almost never used, and they say it's something from the Talmud times, and we don't have the power to do it today, and so on and so forth. You know, it's, 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 um, it's not countenanced. But they did it. Okay? And what they said was, they weren't to declare everybody that wasn't married in the first place. Now you're going to ask me a question, if you've been following the reasoning I've been speaking in the last five minutes, how does that help? Because if the husband was a Cohen, even if you say that the wife is retroactively not married, if nevertheless she ended up under duress, whatever the case, having relations with this Christian family that, that, that captured her, she still can't get married to a Cohen. I get it. So what do you do about that? And in spite of what I just said, they permitted all the wives to go back to her. So how do you figure that out? The Ramad doesn't tell you. But I, no, 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 hold on. Uh, but I, I, it, it, it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, Ralph Herzog, the famous chief rabbi of Israel, I have a book of his called Suggestions for a Religious Constitution for Israel. Tuka, they called it. When Israel became a state, there were all kind of uh, suggestions, ideas for a constitution. Uh, the chief rabbi Herzog had a, uh, a law degree from the University of London. He was uh, no slouch. He also had three other degrees, by the way. So he was a big scholar. He had a, he had a doctorate in marine biology and in Semitics and in mathematics, I believe. Something like that. He was a brain. So, uh, so law was something he knew. And uh, as a matter of fact, there was a student of his who wrote Ben-Gurion's version of the Constitution but didn't get a, uh, accepted, Leo Cohn. Um, now, anyway, so he writes in there, he said he was wondering about this uh, legislation and he ran to a visitor, Zalman Melter, a very famous Rosh Hashiva. And he said, how do you understand this from all? Because I just told you, if you follow what I said until now, uh, even if you retroactively annulled the marriage, um, the Cohen is still not allowed to marry a lady who, or whatever circumstance, ever had relation with somebody who's not Jewish, and that happened over here. And Ezra Zalman Melzer said like this, he said, doesn't, now listen to this, he said, it doesn't mean they allowed them to get married. He said, they, they allowed them to live together without marriage. You understand? In other words, he took a, they, he's saying they took a very technical point of view, and he says, it's also for a Kohen to marry 
Chuba Kedushin, marry someone in this situation. It's not Osir Menatoro to live together with them. And, they were, and, and, and in other words, and what he suggests, and Vadiyosin says also, what he suggests is they were willing to bend the law as far as it could go. And they say like this, he says, oh, you won't be married, but you know, you go, go back to, to square one and you don't have to understand why we're doing this. You, you can just do it. Which means that you have a really a, a situation in which they say like this, it cannot be that these women, particularly the hero ones, imagine, I'm just uh, bringing an example, imagine someone who is captured by these Christians, these murderous Austrian, I'm saying them over here, and subjected to all kinds of horrors, and she didn't convert, and who knows what she went through, and who knows what they did to her, and then they finally escaped, and under the first circumstances, and they tell you, you can't go back to your husband, and so they say like this, they say, I know the law, but it doesn't make any sense. You understand? So we're going to figure out some way to make it work, and it was considered like a, a certain one-time deal. And the people who passed these rules were the greatest rabbis of Germany. And so nobody uh, challenged the, the ruling. It's, 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 a, it's a rare but very remarkable episode of extreme, what's the right word? Uh, uh, um, I don't want to say leniency, extreme flexibility. Extreme flexibility uh, on the part of here. And I can tell you right now, the big rabbis in Germany, they're all relatives of these people. This is very much classic response of fashion in which this is some story like you're reading today, you know, in a yeshiva or in a speech in their tongue, but it's about somebody else. This was everybody's third cousin, their fourth cousin. They're all the Ashkenazi Jews who kind of related one to the other. And if it's not related to you, it's related to your wife's family and all the rest of it. And here comes the lady and she sits herself on your front step. I mean this. You understand? And her family goes to you and says, what are you going to do about this? Where are you? Where are you? you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the Marill or something. What are you going to do about this? And it's a, it's just a very, very interesting and famous episode over here. I want to, uh, share one more point before we close down. And that is that, um, uh, I'll just share you how, how, how I uh, wrote it. As we've seen, the crucial legal question when there's no witnesses was determining the character of the women. You know, did they run away right away? Did they not run away and all that? Did the fact that some of the women had converted indicate a weak religious character, leading a Bayesian to suspect they may have willingly slept with the captors. After all, the Yushalmi states that a woman has a legal right to say that she's not Jewish, um, even though the Mishnah in Sanhedrin says it's an act of idolatry. What about, did the women in Vienna who said that they're, they're, they said, I accept Christianity, he says, I'm a Christian. Did they, did they commit idolatry? Here the Maril adopts what I call the Bill Clinton principle. You understand? What does the word is mean? And, and, and I do mean it. It's always very interesting to me. Uh, I'll tell you exactly. Uh, the Maril makes an important distinction between purely verbal conversion and conversion accompanied by conversionary acts. If a lady says, I'm a guy, it doesn't mean that she converted. We have the right to assume in Awacha that she was using deceptive language. Although guy means a Gentile, it also means a nation. I'll give you an example. Ato echad, v'shim echad, mikam Guy echad bars. We're a guy. The Jews are for the Goy Kadosh, holy nation. So whatever they might think her to mean, when she says, I'm a Goy, she meant, I'm a Jew. <laughs> you say, what does the word is mean? Okay. Later in his correspondence, he makes the point even more clearly. I'll read it in Hebrew and translate it. All which means, you can be deceptive regardless of the wording. Even if somebody says, I'm an Egyptian or an Edomite or symbol, we find people in the Bible that were called by these names. 
And therefore, I never meant to say I'm not Jewish. I was just using a, uh, a fancy language. Even if someone said I'm a Christian, even if someone says, uh, I'm a Christian, what does that word mean? I'm a Christian. Christ means anointed. Christus is anointed. Uh, you know, a pach shemen. The Jews are anointed people. I'll take him in Meshichai. This is what he says. Okay? He says, I feel a notary, Shenikrobobalat Mashiach, Hashem, Ahu Gavro, Hashem, Mashu Mashiach, Yisrael Nami Nikr Mashiach Hashem, I'll take him in Meshichai, Vachai Gamachal Hashem. So notice basically, he wanted to make the argument, you can't hold any of these women uh, guilty for anything they said, because anything they say, you can, if, if, you know, what does is mean? Right? If someone said, I believe in Christ, they could just say, I believe in a, in a Mashiach. Well, you and I also believe in Mashiach also. They can think whatever they want. You see? And so, again, you see, the law was squeezed for all it could hold because they were trying to, 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 to deal with a, with a tragedy of what I would call the unprecedented proportions even in the, uh, terrible, the terrible Middle Ages. So, um, what emerges from all my remarks tonight? The whole darn thing happened from some d- dumb, stupid tale about a host desecration, which obviously was trumped up in order to save the Duke from paying off the money, the astronomical sums they do to borrow from the Jews. The intervention of a ruler against the Jews was rare. And I just described one tonight. And if you noticed, in all the cases that I mentioned before, it was a mob. But in the case I mentioned tonight, the Gzeris Ostreich, it was the government. When the Jews are faced by the government, they're doomed. This foreshadowed Hitler, with the only exception that you could get out of by converting. Do you follow what I'm saying? All the terrible cases that I mentioned never involved the king going against them. Because if the king goes against them, obviously you're going to get killed. The Jews don't have the power to withstand that. And what happened when the king went against the Jews of Vienna? Each and every one of them were killed. They all burned at the stake except these women, you know, in these uh, funny situations. And so you see over here that the Jews face a very tough conundrum. You've got to be in good relations with the ruler, and that doesn't guarantee you anything, but if the ruler turns on you, then it's the worst of all possible situations. That's why, with this I close, when you read about German and Austrian rabbis in the 15th century, in the 1400s, uh, you're amazed. People like the Trumas Hadeshen and others they lived in the very challenging situations. And they had to hold their flock together and at the same time deal successfully with the rulers and with the mob. Why Jews would want to continue to live in places like Austria? Parnassi have no choice. The Trumas Adeshna, I said before, was a very big rabbi. His mother was killed in the uh, massacre I just described, which he's one of the people that was killed in the synagogue. And he used to tell the story over to his students every Tisha above. We noticed because he left the student who described everything that, 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 that uh, his daily schedule. He's every tissue we sit there and talk about the Xerus Ostrach. So here's a, a person who's, whose parents were killed, mother was killed at a very young age. And what did he do? He said, like this is, I, can't, <laughs> I can't let this get to me. He grew up to be a very famous Jewish leader and was a significant scholar. And he built a great yeshiva, by the way, uh, Wiener Neustadt, not too far away from Vienna. And you're amazed. Why would anybody want to stay there? How could anybody stay there all the rest of The Jews had to develop from within the kind of fortitude which says that no matter what happens to the right of me and what happens to the left of me, I'm going to go forward. As you and me, we're in this together, but we're all alone, like King David says. And I can't allow what all these nuts do around me 
to get to me and, and tear me down. Because if, if they tear me down mentally, then they win, and we are not going to let them win. With that, I conclude, and as I said last time, since there's a war on, I'm sure you'll join me in saying, Achenu Kobayi Sisran, Asim B'Tzav Shibyal, the soldiers, Hamdim Ben Be'Av Basha, Hamokim Rachim Aliyam B'Yodzim Yitzhar L'Avrocha, Na'afei L'Avr Shibyal Gula, Hashab Al-Goyz Mankari B'Namar, Amen, good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.